Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing over there, Nathan? Good, Clinton. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. We're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, before we get into the topic for today, I just wanted to point out that there is a recent book written by an Episcopalian minister named Kira Schlesinger. Her book is called Pro-Choice and Christian, um, and she and she subtitled it something along the lines of uh, Reconciling Faith, Politics, and Justice. Now, we're probably not going to talk about that book here on the podcast just because it's uh, it's largely geared toward Christians. Um, but the thing is that she actually makes the standard feminist argument in her book. And so it might be something that comes up or we, we may address uh, the feminist argument for abortion at some point. But uh, if you're interested in my thoughts on that book, if you've heard about it, wondering what, what a, a pro-life response to some of the arguments might be, you can go onto the Life Training Institute blog and you can find my review of that book there. Or you can you can actually find it on Amazon as well. Clinton and Wilcox went over to uh, the Bible and Beer Consortium in Texas, Dallas, Texas, and it's an apologetics ministry. They, do a, they host a lot of debates on various topics related to either ethics or apologetics. And so he debated uh, Matt Dillahunty, who's a internet atheist sensation, and he does a lot of training. He's essentially, from what the announcer said, he's kind of an anti-apologist. He's basically an atheist apologist. Yeah, that's a good way of, of describing him, kind of an apologist for atheism. Yeah, he's a, more of an atheist apologist, kind of like a lot of people have heard of Peter Bogosian in his book, uh, Manual for Creating Atheists. So that's kind of what Matt Dillahunty does. So he presented the affirmative that, yes, the topic of the debate, excuse me, was, do we have a right to die? And Matt did the affirmative saying that, yes, we have a right to die. And so his opening argument, just to give my little take on it, was he made a very compelling argument. I felt like he did a very good job of trying to frame the issue from his perspective and trying to argue for it from a naturalistic standpoint of human rights and the human person. 
he did a good job of also trying to frame what he thinks of the right to die. So somebody who is in, say, a terminal illness where they are going to die, but they want to alleviate their own pain and suffering from the illness or their circumstances. And so he also tried to basically frame the debate and say, look, the position I'm not arguing for is that we have a right to kill ourselves willy-nilly. We don't have a right to just kill ourselves if we feel like it. And then also trying to frame it in the context of a legal right, that the Declaration of Independence frames human rights in terms of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and saying that restricting the right to die in the case of terminal illness or assisted suicide would be a restriction of that fundamental liberty, or the liberty to control how we basically exit this world. So that was essentially Matt's argument, and we can post the, we'll post a link to the debate on the Facebook page if anybody is interested in watching it. So Matt presented that argument, and he also anticipated a few comebacks to his argument in that he argued that, well, there are a lot of slippery slope arguments that people make. So, for example, some opponents of assisted suicide will bring up, they say, well, a right to die might get translated into a duty to die so that somebody say an older person who is at the end of their life, they might feel like they have an obligation to be euthanized so as to prevent their family any future pain or suffering of watching their loved one go through a tough time. I mean, a lot of us know or have experienced a loved one who has been at the end of their life and has experienced pain and suffering and gone through the end of life care up until the moment they pass away. So that was essentially Matt's argument was that it's necessary to prevent that pain and suffering and that restricting a right to die would be restricting a fundamental liberty of the person to choose the method in which they essentially exit the world. And he argued that, for example, a firefighter running into a burning building and risking his life to save somebody else or a soldier who risks his life to evacuate a fallen comrade while under fire, or he also gave... Matt gave the example of a woman who pushes her child out of the way of an oncoming bus and loses her life in the process, that essentially that woman has a fundamental right to choose to end her life for the benefit of another. And so Matt basically argued that that is a fundamental liberty that people have. And that's a good summary, I think, of Matt's argument. Now, Clinton, he started out, he gave four points. He started out by well, actually, you know what? I'll let, I'll let you uh, talk about your four points that you had. Okay. Basically, the argument that I presented was in four points. And the first argument that I gave was regarding what the nature of rights are. And I talked about how there are natural rights and there are legal rights. That a natural right corresponds to what promotes human flourishing. So we need to eat to survive, so we have a right to food. We need water to survive, we have a right to water. We have an innate desire to reproduce, uh, so we have a right to sex. And so uh, so those are natural rights, and they correspond to promoting human flourishing. A legal right is a right that is granted to us by the government, such as the right to vote and the right to hold public office. And, and then I also make a distinction between positive and negative rights. And this is actually something that uh, that I forgot to mention during my opening 
my opening constructive, but I did clarify during the cross-examination is that there's a difference between positive and negative rights. A positive right is a right that others are obligated to provide us with. And so, and so the right to an attorney in the United States is considered a positive right, because if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. So your right to an attorney is considered a positive right. Negative rights are rights that others are obligated not to prevent us from obtaining. So, for example, I talk about how we have a right to sex. Um, that's not to say that a woman is obligated to provide a man with sex if he wants it. That would be if it was a positive right. But sex is a negative right. In, in other words, other people are obligated not to prevent you from obtaining it. And so things like food and water also. Uh, nobody is obligated to provide me with food or water, but I have a negative right to food and water, meaning that uh, that no one can prevent me from, from working in order to obtain it or from growing my own food uh, or going to the you know down to the, the river and getting my own water or something like that. And so those are negative rights. Now, of course, um, there, there's more to discuss about that, too, because I do think that, for example, I might be obligated to give money to a homeless person or food to a homeless person, but that's talking about charity. That's not talking about uh, a right to food. And so there's, you know, there's, there's a bit more of a complicated discussion regarding rights, but these are the discussion of rights in a nutshell. And so since natural rights are rights that promote human flourishing, then we have a right to life, a right to self-defense, a right to food, water, etc. Death does not promote human flourishing. It, just the opposite, it frustrates human flourishing. So there can be no natural right to death. So then the, the next obvious question would be, well, if there's no natural right to die, perhaps there's a legal right to die. Maybe the government can grant me a right to die. But the problem is, if life is a natural right, because it promotes human flourishing, then the right to die cannot be a right even granted by the government because it frustrates human flourishing. In fact, it's the greatest harm that you can do to a person. So the government cannot grant you a right that violates your your natural rights. That's one reason why slavery was wrong, that it was wrong to own slaves even though the government permitted it. And the government was wrong to permit it because permitting slavery violated the natural right to freedom of black people. And so the government cannot grant you a right that violates that violates one of your natural rights. So that was my first argument, my argument from um, from natural rights versus legal rights. My second argument was regarding the purpose of suffering, that number one, suffering helps us appreciate the plights of other people, so it makes us more empathetic to the suffering of others if we have suffered ourselves. And number two, suffering builds character. That, uh, you know, for example, if you've had everything handed to you on a silver platter your whole life, you're not going to appreciate, you're not going to appreciate the value of money or the value of hard work, uh, like someone who has had to work hard to earn money their entire life has. And so the purpose of suffering is that it makes us empathetic toward other people and it builds character. So it, it's not possible to remove suffering from anybody. Absolutely. Everybody suffers. It's just part of the human condition. And so suffering has, um, you know, I don't know if we could necessarily call it benefits or not, but it but it has certain certain effects on an individual and in that suffering actually makes us better people. And so that's why it would not be permissible then to kill yourself to, to avoid suffering, um, whatever your suffering is. Our audience, listening audience right now, if you want to hear more on this, when Stephanie Gray appeared on the show a couple of months ago, her and Clinton uh, had a really good discussion about this. So if our audience would like to hear more, I'd recommend checking that episode out. 
Yeah, and in the course of my of my talk, also during the introduction, and then I came back to it during the closing. I talked about three different people who uh, who suffered. Um, I, I gave a, a personal example for myself, and I talked about Nick Wojcik, which is an example that Stephanie Gray uses, and then I talked about uh, a kid named Noah Wall who was uh, diagnosed in the womb as having, uh, I think, like 98% of his brain uh, missing. And his parents were encouraged to abort like five times, and they, they opted not to. And they, they picked out a casket for him because they, they because they thought that he was going to die shortly after birth. But he ended up regrowing something like 70 or 80% of his brain and was able to uh, to live a relatively normal childhood. And so all of these things go to show that that we shouldn't just kill somebody to avoid suffering because, you know, for one thing, di doctors' diagnoses are sometimes wrong, but also suffering builds character. Someone like Nick Wojcik and myself who have suffering in our backgrounds um, know what it's like. And so, as Stephanie Gray would say, what what changed wasn't, uh, wasn't the suffering that we went through. It was our it was our particular perspectives that changed, and that's why we decided to continue living rather than ending things early. And that that was something that uh, that Matt Dillahunty tried to nail me on during the cross examination too, because he he just really focused like a laser beam in on people at the end of life who are suffering extremely, and we can't ease their suffering. But the the, the problem is is that while Matt just wanted to focus on that one particular case. Uh, I was responding, or I was talking to a right to die in general, because I'm familiar with the with the literature, not just on abortion, but on end-of-life issues, too. And pe the people that Matt is trying to focus on is a very, very rare case, whereas I was trying to talk about a right to die in general. So, you know, if a teenage boy is dumped by his girlfriend and wants to kill himself, should we allow him to? Well, I would say no. Uh, because I think he's an in intrinsically valuable human being. But if you're going to argue that we have a right to die, then it seems like there's there's no uh, there's no logical reason not to allow himself. Because uh, if there's a right to die, that means that everybody has a right to die. You you know you talk about people in persistent vegetative states who've lost their higher brain functioning. All of these kinds of situations are are worth talking about as well. But they they were situations that Matt didn't want to address, and that was part of the disconnect between the two between our our individual arguments. So my case was about a right to die in general, whereas Matt was trying to focus more specifically on, on, a, on a very rare situation. So I, I just talked about my two philosophical arguments. Now, I also made a couple of pragmatic arguments. My first pragmatic argument was that legalizing voluntary euthanasia often leads to involuntary euthanasia. In other words, a right to die often becomes a duty to die. Now, in, in Matt's opening constructive, he did try to warn the audience against slippery slope arguments. And so before I talked about this argument, I prefaced it by referencing back to Matt's opening, opening speech and talking about how, just like most fallacies, the slippery slope fallacy is not always a fallacy. The slippery slope argument is not a fallacy if there is warrant for it. And so I pointed to countries that we've seen, such as Denmark and Belgium, that we've actually seen uh, legalizing voluntary euthanasia leads to involuntary euthanasia. So there is warrant for making that argument. And then my other pragmatic argument was that legalizing euthanasia reduces the incentive to find cures. And so I, I gave as an example of this uh, a man named Randy Stroop in the documentary How to Die in Oregon. He had a terminal case of cancer, and he petitioned his his insurance company to get chemotherapy. But the insurance company, because he was a terminal case and they deemed it not worth the money, they would not pay for his chemotherapy treatment, but they would provide his suicide pills if he wanted to kill himself.
himself. And so legalizing euthanasia, assisted suicide, all these kinds of things, reduces the incentive to find cures, and it, um, and it denigrates the value of human life. And so those are my four arguments in a nutshell. I, I would just add, uh, both you and Matt, I thought, did a really good job. I think Matt was very respectful and very articulate in the way he presented his case. Hmm. And uh, yeah. you did a really good job with presenting your arguments and addressing the broader issue. I think that Matt made the mistake of focusing solely on the hard cases where, yeah, assisted suicide might sound like a good idea. So somebody at the end of life, they're going through a lot of pain and suffering. Why can't they just end their life now as opposed to six months from now when they might be what's considered a shell of a person? And then also, you know, uh, for the listening audience, I just went through uh, J.P. Moreland and Scott Ray's book, Body and Soul, on uh, human nature and ethics. It's a really good book for looking at the philosophical issues uh, related to these and uh, related to the mind-body problem and how it applies to ethics. And so having read that book, a lot of their concepts were going through uh, my mind while I was listening to your arguments and Matt's. And also, if anyone in the listening audience is interested in it, I'll just warn you, it's a little bit of a painful read because it's very deep and philosophical. But they talk about this concept where somebody at the end of life, where medical treatment will be futile. And Scott Ray talks a lot about this in his writing, where somebody at the end of life, yeah, their medical treatment might prolong their life for just a few weeks at a time, but do they have a right to refuse medical treatment? And Scott Ray and J.P. Moreland seem to be on the grounds of, yeah, they do have a right to re, uh, refuse medical treatment if medical treatment is not going to do any good in the long run. Would that be the position you're essentially arguing for also, Clinton? Yeah, I, I would say that people have a right to refuse medical treatment, especially if they deem it to be more harmful than helpful. Uh, for example, if they're going to lose their lucidity uh, by taking the drugs or or that if it's just going to like prolong pain and suffering or something like that. I don't think someone is obligated to extend their life indefinitely as much as they can. And also, uh, like I told Matt as well, my position does not entail that it would be absolutely wrong to end somebody's life at the end of life if they're in extreme constant pain and there's no no hope of overcoming it or or easing their pain or anything like that then my position does not entail that it's necessarily wrong to end their lives as an act of mercy but although you know i i think that we should use uh, painkillers to ease the pain and we and in most cases we can even render somebody unconscious uh, so that they don't suffer and so and so it's a very very small minority of cases in which they are in extreme pain and they can't be eased or rendered unconscious uh, and so my position does not entail that it would necessarily be wrong to end that person's life as an act of mercy. The problem is, though, that my position is a very nuanced one, and Matt's was kind of all or nothing, that he was trying trying to argue that if I if I can agree in this one very rare case that it would be permit that it might be permissible to kill them, then I should think that it's permissible in all cases. But that's just that's just not it at all because of the nuances with my view. Yeah. That is a mistake that a lot of people will make is they'll focus solely on the hard questions. So, like, if our listening audience goes back a few weeks to the episodes we did with Janique Stewart on the hard cases of pregnancy and the case of rape, and as it relates to abortion, not necessarily assisted suicide, but there is a similar mistake being made here is that a lot of people will confuse. They'll look at the hard cases where it's like, okay, well, what do we do in this hard case? And then they'll think it applies to the broad question in total, do we have a right to die? So in the case of abortion, somebody says, well, what about abortion to save a mother's life? Oh, you would do an abortion to save a mother's life, therefore abortion's okay. Well, no, hmm. it's a non sequitur fallacy. It doesn't follow that because it might be acceptable in this one really hard case where somebody, back to assisted suicide, where somebody is 
at the end of their life, they're experiencing a great amount of pain and suffering, and they're going to die anyways, but let's try and ease their suffering. It doesn't follow that because we might ease their suffering in this case by allowing them to die naturally and painlessly that we should apply it to the broad case. So like you just mentioned, Clinton, the teenager whose girlfriend just broke up with him and he's feeling suicidal, we would not grant him the right to kill himself then. We would say, look, we need to get you therapy and help you reframe your perspective on the world that the world is actually a better place than you're thinking it is right now. And I guess we can also bring up the autonomy arguments for assisted suicide that autonomy in this case is not unlimited. We would say that this person should not have autonomy over their life and when they choose to exit this world because their autonomy might lead them to make a very dumb decision, which is ending their life for a very frivolous reason, girlfriend breaking up with them. And so, yeah, depression, also severe clinical depression can be a very tough thing to deal with, but it isn't an untreatable condition. And so, and like you just mentioned also that assisted suicide can lead insurance companies or medical providers or doctors to kind of become lazy and not look for a cure for certain ailments like clinical depression or like certain painful illnesses. One of the points that I brought up too regarding uh, Matt's case is that is that there have been studies done in Oregon and Washington, both states which have legalized euthanasia. And the, the reason people euthanize themselves or get themselves euthanized is uh, it, it's actually rare that someone got themselves euthanized because of pain and suffering or because of a fear of pain and suffering. Uh, it was a minority of cases in which that happened. The majority of cases were because people wanted to control the time and the method of their own death and because they wanted to die with dignity. Those were the most common reasons. And so focusing on on people who are dying in severe pain that we can't ease is just focusing on a very rare, very hard case. It's like trying to argue for abortion rights but only focusing on rape cases. Even if I was to concede that abortion is permissible in the case of rape, that wouldn't justify abortion in any other case. So we have, we have to look at what, what really is the case. And he was trying to just make a broad generality from a very rare, uh, very specific case. And so that was one of the one of the weaknesses of his argument as well. Yeah. Since we were also, the topic of rights and the grounding of rights did come up during the cross-examination. In fact, it was, seemed like it was the first question you guys discussed. And I thought you both did a good job with the, the dialogue on this. It, it's a conversation that I think gets brushed over a lot is the grounding of rights and justice. So, for example, I'm taking a sociology class right now. And sociology has quite literally become social justice, social justice, social justice. They'll pound it over and over again. But they won't give any definition of justice or the grounding of human rights in general, or they won't even look at the what Hadley Arcus calls the first things, the first principles of morality and justice. So I'm kind of glad that that did come up during the debate of the rights and the grounding of rights. And Matt, actually, he conceded. He goes, I'm not talking about intrinsic rights or natural rights. I'm talking about legal rights here and how the state would enforce or protect those rights. And actually, it was interesting to see him basically say, he goes, well, how are we even supposed to enforce a restriction on assisted suicide? We can't prosecute somebody who successfully kills himself. It's impossible to do that. So, Right. That was why, and that's why I talked about how when we're talking about euthanasia, assisted suicide, those kinds of things, it's true that we can't necessarily prevent someone from committing suicide. After all, the law is uh, is usually reactive, not proactive, because 
uh, you know, because, you know, police officers are not omniscient. They can't be everywhere at once, and so they can't just continually uh, prevent crimes. They can do as much as they can, but in the long run, you know, the police aren't going to be able to prevent all murders or all rapes, but they will be able to prosecute after the fact. And so, uh, and of course, uh, someone who tries to kill themselves, we usually recognize is uh, mentally disturbed, and so rather than throw them in jail, we usually, um, you know, get them uh, help from a, from a therapist or something. But Regarding euthanasia and assisted suicide, this is something that Matt disagreed with, but that's why I brought up the point that when we talk about this, we're not talking about whether or not you have a right to kill yourself. Uh, I would say I would still say that you don't, because like I said in the debate, I think we have obligations to ourselves as well. But the, the euthanasia assisted suicide debate is a debate over whether or not a third party has a right to kill us. Yeah, and that's also where it came up. And I don't think Matt did a really – I think he kind of tried to brush past that, but – you could tell that question kind of went unanswered by him was that what about the physician who say is contracted to engage and commit the lethal action. So a patient comes to a doctor. Okay. For example, uh, Dr. Kevorkian, Jack Kevorkian, he has done a lot of advocacy for uh, assisted suicide. So a doctor like Dr. Kevorkian uh, patient comes to him saying, Hey, can you administer the lethal injection of the poison that's going to kill me? And Matt kind of brushed over that and said, well, we would have to restrict the doctors from doing that. And I don't think he really attempted to answer that is the law would go after the doctors on that. Or in the case of abortion, uh, this comes up a lot is what about should we punish women who have abortions? And someone like uh, Dr. Mike Adams, a criminologist, uh, he points out, he goes, well, you know, there's not really a meeting of the minds. The woman who's getting the abortion, she doesn't really know what the abortion is going to entail. In fact, she's probably bought the notion that uh, the unborn is just a randomized blob of cells, just a randomized growth within her uterus, whereas the abortion doctor himself knows exactly what's going on in regards to fetal development. In fact, you actually look at a book like Dr. Warren Hearn's Abortion Practice, and he clearly knows what exactly is going on and how to achieve fetal death and make sure that all body parts are removed from the womb. And I know we keep referring back to abortion, but that is kind of the primary topic that LTI covers. Although it is really cool that we are starting to cover another topic like assisted suicide since it is constantly coming up. In fact, correct me if I'm wrong, Clinton, wasn't there a bill during, was it the last election or the election before regarding assisted suicide to legalize it in California? Yeah, and that bill passed. It did pass? Yeah. I believe so. Okay, yeah. I believe it was in the last election. I seem to remember, not not the last election, the election before it, I believe in 2014 or 2012 is when it came up. That's essentially what's going on here is the doctor knows exactly how to achieve death, and the doctor is also arguably functioning with all their mental faculties in place. So they know exactly what they're doing, and they're fully aware of their own moral agency and moral responsibility, whereas a patient who's coming to a doctor who is suffering from a lot of pain and suffering, it could be argued that they don't have all their mental faculties in place in order to make a well-reasoned or give uh, reasoned consent to the act of killing themselves. So uh, there's something else that's limiting the act of giving consent to their own assisted suicide. And this is also where the question about autonomy comes up. A lot of times I've actually had a conversation with a friend recently and she brought up, she goes, well, don't I have the control over exactly what happens to my body? And this also comes up in the abortion discussion, but especially in assisted suicide, 
Yeah, so one of the differences, obviously, between Matt's case and mine is that we have a difference in viewpoint on what rights are. He believes that we should just grant all rights unless there's some uh, some good reason to to deny it. And I view rights as natural rights, and that what rights are are what promotes human flourishing. And so the problem is, is that, uh, and th- this is something, you know, th- this is one of the ways that I could have definitely improved in the cross-examination was, uh, was the last question he asked was regarding how having a, a natural need translates into a, a natural right. I view it as patently obvious that it does, but I didn't have a good res- good response ready. And so I, I had to kind of think about it, but the time ran out before I could formulate that. So uh, in the future, I'll need to make sure I have a good response ready for that. But the problem is, is that Matt has to view, has to basically borrow from my view in order to avoid absurdities and and a barbaric logical implication of his own view. Uh, now, the the audience was actually pretty hostile against me, and you could definitely tell that, especially during the cross-examination, you know, because I, I had, like, one woman who was, like, constantly heckling me during the, uh, the cross-ex, and uh, Matt actually apologized uh, to me for that afterward, but it was definitely a bit of a, of a distraction. But during my the time that I was trying to ask him questions, I asked him if... Uh, because a right to die should be, uh, you know, either we all have it or nobody has it. Because I, I asked him, if we're going to prevent someone from having a right, what are the grounds on which we would negate that? And his answer was something along the lines of, like, if it's a a, a harm to, to society or something, then we should prevent that right. I forget exactly how he framed that. But but my, my question then, I, I posed a thought experiment to him. I said, okay, so what if our government, unknown to the public, was rounding up homeless people and harvesting them for their organs to give them to beneficiaries, to, to people who are doing good for society? Wouldn't that be permissible under your view of rights? And he and he said, well, no, it wouldn't. And I said, and I said you know, uh, but they're, they're homeless though. And then the crowd just like started jeering and uh, to any any reasonable person who to, who who wanted to take me charitably and had an open mind would understand that I wasn't denigrating homeless people. I was trying to respond to uh, Matt's particular viewpoint, and so I had to actually clarify myself because you know the the audience, despite the fact that I tried to humanize myself to them several times, still wanted to eat me alive. But basically, Matt responded, "Yeah, but they're valuable." But again, that's that's not Matt's view. That's my view. So he was borrowing from my view that homeless people are intrinsically valuable, which is why we shouldn't violate their rights. But but that kind of res- response isn't open to Matt. Uh, so he was kind of borrowing from my view in order to to make his own view not seem so barbaric or or absurd. Yeah. So that was one of the problems with Matt's view of rights is that he has to borrow from from a natural rights perspective in order to avoid absurdities and barbarism. For one, it's. Unfortunately, it does show some of the state of political and ethical discourse uh, right now in our culture is that sometimes if something gets misstated during a debate, it'll lead to mockery and jeering and personal attacks. And it's really, I mean, I think people need to understand is that during a debate, the two speakers during a debate, they're trying to frame their material in a way that the audience can understand and are having to think on the spot and give correct answers. Debaters will argue their positions or will rehearse their arguments beforehand, but when they're on the stage and having to uh, respond in kind, sometimes things can get misstated. So that is a, a little bit of an issue that does come up during debates, and really it's a bit of a sad case that mm-hmm. something like that would happen. Just, do you have any more, anything else you want to add in regards to rights and natural rights and the grounding of natural rights? No, that's pretty much it. All right. I'd like to... Uh, 
address the autonomy arguments because that seemed to be where Matt was arguing, especially in his opening statement, was that uh, liberty involves self-autonomy, so the uh, liberty to decide what happens to and oneself. And this also does come up in the debates over abortion, and I think we're going to do a future episode addressing the bodily autonomy arguments. But in regards to autonomy, there, this does come up. So, like, for example, a friend of mine stated, it was actually interesting, we were having a conversation about abortion, and she immediately jumped to assisted suicide. She goes, well, you pro-lifers are against assisted suicide, so you want to revoke my autonomy and individual liberty to do what I want to myself and to my own body. And uh, I know Frank Beckwith has given some good thought experiments in regards to this. His book, uh, Taking Rights Seriously, uh, Rights as an R-I-T-E-S, he actually uh, has a good analysis of this where he talks about, he goes, you know, just because somebody uses their own autonomy, they're exercising their own autonomy to choose something, it doesn't follow that that is a ethically or a morally permissible or morally good thing for them to choose. So he gives the example of suppose during the reign of Nazi Germany that some Jewish citizens in Germany, they heard and were convinced by the rhetoric of the Third Reich and the Nazi movement, the anti-Jew movement, that they had a moral obligation to kill themselves in order to promote the benefit of the homeland of Germany. And so they willingly go to the death camps and, and volunteer to let themselves be killed. And Frank Beckwith points out, he goes, for one, that would be a morally objectionable thing for them to do is, look, you don't have a right to choose to kill yourself in order to benefit your fellow countrymen. So the autonomy arguments do come up a lot in regards to assisted suicide. And so how did you kind of respond to those during the debate? Yeah, actually, I didn't really respond to the autonomy argument per se, because there, there really just wasn't a whole lot of time. And that was that was really one of the main issues with this debate is we were not granted any rebuttal periods. So it was it was just opening opening speeches, cross examination, and then audience Q and A. So we weren't given any rebuttal periods. And then we we were also given closing statements, which we were not informed beforehand that we were going to be doing closing statements. But the, but there's also kind of a lack of clear communication beforehand. I thought we were only going to have 15 minutes for opening speeches, and Matt was under the impression we were going to have 30. So there's also a little bit of a, a miscommunication before the event as well. But yeah, so having no rebuttal period was really a problem uh, with this particular debate format because cross-examination is not a rebuttal period. Cross-examination is a period to clarify your opponent's views before you before you go on and rebut them. So really, anything that happens during cross-examination should not be seen as as influencing one way or another, uh, you know, who who wins or loses the debate, uh, because then you go on and you rebut the the arguments after you've clarified them in cross-examination. So yeah, so that was really a main issue with that. So I, I really didn't get much of a chance to talk about autonomy in and of itself. If I had the chance to talk about autonomy, what I would have talked about is that the modern view of autonomy, such as from from pro-choice people or from pro-euthanasia, assisted suicide people, etc., is that autonomy is the right or the freedom to do whatever you want to anything that is in or on your body. And that's just, that's just, or I guess maybe not on your body, but to your body or to anything inside your body. And that's just not what autonomy traditionally is, especially if you look up the, the philosophy of autonomy. You don't have the, you don't ha just have the right to do whatever you want to your body or to your life or to anything like that. I did touch on this a little bit, talking about autonomy, and then, uh, and then Matt 
you know pushed me on that and, and said that I just believe we have an obligation to ourselves because I I believe in a third party which he indicated was God, and which which isn't necessarily the case. It's it's partially true that I believe in God and so I believe we have obligations to ourselves. But also, if you look at at the philosophy of autonomy, philosophers who have argued for autonomy, such as Immanuel Kant, argue that there that there are such things as moral obligations, and so there are moral obligations even to ourselves. So autonomy is not the right or the freedom to do anything we want to our bodies or to our lives or anything like that. Autonomy is the right to act in accordance with, with the moral law toward our body or toward our life. And so if if it's immoral to kill ourselves, then killing ourselves is a violation of our autonomy because we're not using our autonomy in a way that's morally permitted. Yeah, that is something that comes up. Actually, a really good way to frame the idea of complete bodily autonomy. Uh, Trent Horn gives... He coined the term, I believe it was Trent Horn who coined the term, uh, what's called sovereign zone. So I have basically sovereignty over anything that is part of my physical essence, basically my physical body. Yeah, it didn't really come up. The next topic, uh, sanctity of life, I noticed Matt, he kind of he kind of poo-pooed the idea, which does make sense, especially from a naturalistic standpoint, approaching this from a philosophical naturalism, which seems to be Matt's position that sanctity of life, since we are just physical beings in a physical universe with no, nothing be above or beyond, and obviously both me and Clinton disagree with that standpoint, but this was the, the standpoint that was presented was that sanctity of life is really kind of, from a naturalistic standpoint, it's kind of a nonsense term. And Matt kind of tried to make it look like it was a nonsense term. And that's an, another debate entirely whether or not there is a higher purpose or a higher element metaphysically to the universe. What would you be your uh, defense of the sanctity of life, though? Well, yeah, bringing up sanctity of life wasn't... I, I forget where Matt brought that up, if it, if it was in his opening speech or the cross-examination, but, but my case was not dependent on sanctity of life. Now, leading up to this debate, I uh, one of the books that I used to prepare myself was... Ronald Dworkin's book, Life's Dominion, and he's he believes in the permissibility of abortion and the permissibility of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. And he talks about how there's a difference between sanctity of life arguments and arguments for the uh, for the intrinsic rights of the individual. And so my my argument was not even based on the sanctity of life. My argument is based on on natural rights. And so bringing up sanctity of life is not responding to to my argument at all. So it, I do believe in the sanctity of life because I'm I'm a Christian and I believe that life is intrinsically valuable. But my argument itself was based on individual rights. And so talking about the sanctity of life is is kind of a if if you're responding to my case and trying to refute sanctity of life arguments, and that's really just a straw man against my view. Yeah. So re really, I I don't know. I don't think I can justify sanctity of life apart from using religious arguments, because I'm of the opinion that if God does not exist, then human life is not intrinsically valuable. So that's why, since I was trying to make a secular case, that's why I avoided language about the sanctity of life, because if I was going to argue for sanctity of life, I would have to bring religious arguments into it, because I just don't see human beings as intrinsically valuable unless life is sacred. And that's not just me talking either. You have atheists like uh, Alex Rosenberg, a modern atheist thinker, or atheist thinkers who have gone before, like Friedrich Nietzsche, who argue that life is not is not valuable um, apart from, from religious arguments. And then you also have uh, philosophers like Michael Tooley, 
who who do argue that the the uh, sanctity of life is really a, a Christian view, and so Tuli would say that we need to reject these religious viewpoints like life's intrinsic value in order to um, you know so that we can start doing things like um, like permitting abortion and infanticide and things like that. So yeah, so the sanctity of life is really just a, a religious viewpoint, and so that's why I didn't really make the case because I was trying to keep my my viewpoint secular to appeal to the largest number of people in the audience. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, sanctity of life really does, it ties into a, a bigger metaphysical question of basically, and basically debates over theism. So it was good, I think, that you stayed away from that argument and basically saved it for another time. One last point I wanted to touch on about right to refuse medical treatment. How did you and how would you frame that topic? So, for example, somebody who they have a do not resuscitate order on their medical chart while they're in the hospital. Yeah, well, I, I did touch on this a little bit earlier that my position that it's wrong to kill somebody because uh, because of their uh, individual rights, it doesn't then follow that that person must do everything in their power to extend their life in any and all circumstances. So if, for example, it's wrong for someone to be euthanized because they have a debilitating illness, it's not necessarily immoral for them to, for, for example, be taken off of life support. If, if life support is just keeping their body alive, but, they're, but they've lost all brain function, then there's no immorality done in taking them off life support. Or if we're talking about giving them a medication, if they're, if they're suffering and we have medication that will extend their life, but it will also extend their suffering, then there's no obligation to, to extend their life because you would also be extending their suffering. And additionally, if they are suffering and you have a medication that can ease their suffering, but it will also result in shortening the rest of their life, I would say that you're also permitted in giving them that medication because the intent is not to, to kill them, but the intent is to ease their suffering with the foreseeable consequence that their life will also be shortened. Yeah. You know, I've heard uh, our boss, Scott Klusendorf, has talked on this also. He did a uh, panel discussion, not a panel discussion. He did an interview with Summit Ministries on end-of-life issues, and he talked about this. He goes, you know, uh, natural death is a part of the world we live in. From a Christian perspective, it's part of the outcome of rebellion against God, of the fall. And so it is one of the aspects of life itself. So that is, that is a good position. It's not that pro-lifers are completely irrational on uh, the issue of life and death. It's that we're trying to address the reality of it and address the reality of life and death in a morally acceptable and morally beneficial way. So once again, if you're interested in watching that debate, then uh, we'll post up the link on our Facebook page. I'd like to thank you for listening, and I'd like to thank Nathan for joining me and for uh, for guiding the, the discussion here today. Hopefully the information contained has been beneficial to you. And, and of course, if you have uh, further questions, you can um, you can submit those to us, or if you just want to keep the discussion going, feel free to do so on our, on our Facebook page when we post this up live. So if you appreciated this information, we would just ask that you also share it around, rate us and review us on our Facebook page, uh, on Blog Talk Radio and on iTunes. This is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website, and click on Donate 
donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation in, into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. Now next week, uh, we plan to have uh, Aaron joining us again, and we're going to be discussing bodily rights arguments. And so this is actually, I'm planning to make this the first of a, of a two-part series, because I want to talk about bodily rights arguments next week, and then I want to follow that up by talking about the rest of Judith Jarvis Thompson's essay, A Defense of Abortion, the following week. So next week will be bodily rights arguments, and it's going to be a, a good discussion, so you won't want to miss that. So on behalf of Nathan and myself, I'd like to thank you again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.